Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. A little bit more professional looking, I guess. You'll notice I call it at the top seeds of application. Here's why I hesitated even in doing this, in making this step, is because I don't feel telling you how the study applies in your life is really my role as much as it's God's. I believe God can send the Holy Spirit and he can take any words I say and say, this is for you. You know, maybe the 200th word is for Mike and the 250th word is Gabriella and, and it goes around the table and he's able to take bits and pieces that you might hear that I don't even mean to make a point of. You know what I mean? So I, I hesitate because I don't want to put the Holy Spirit in a box and you leave today thinking, oh, this is all that was important from the study. I, I want you to just see it as these are just little seeds, all right? God might have a bouquet for you, all right? <laughs> these are just seeds and he's got a bouquet for you that might be outside of what these are. So these are these are just for fun. These are to follow along and everybody can keep track of where we're at and see little things as we go. But the main thing is that the Holy Spirit speaks to us individually as only he's able to do. And uh, be alert and attentive to what the Spirit would say to you. All right? So, seeds of application. Starting now, uh, Genesis chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31, verses 24 through 35. We're picking up basically where we left off last week. Last week, you'll notice on the board, the uh, title of last week's message was Jacob Sneaks Away. You'll remember Jacob took his two wives out into the field and said, hey, this is what's going on. And they said, go for it. Let's go. Let's get out of here. There's nothing left here for us. And so uh, they traveled quite some distance. I mean, we're talking hundreds of miles away from where they started. Laban got wind that they had left. They had a few days head start on Laban. Laban gets a collection of people together. By all intents and purposes, as you read through that language, the language is very reminiscent of a war party almost. You know, you would it has that flavor to it. So Laban is in hot pursuit after Jacob and his wives and the wives' maids, the boys that have been born, Dinah's been born. And they're after him, and they end up catching up to him. We left off at verse 23. Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. And again, that's 400 miles away. I mean, quite some distance. So picking up from there then, somebody might read in verse 24. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So here we have, in these mountains of Gilead, Jacob his two wives, the maids, the kids, the animals. It's a big party. I mean, not a party as in like a celebration, but it's a big group. And they're hiding out in the hills, but nearby is Laban and his party, his big group, right? We don't know if Jacob knows that Laban is nearby, but Laban, the language makes it sound like Laban knows that he's close to Jacob. It says that he overtook him, that he's, you know, he reached his destination, caught up to him. So they end up getting there. What do you suppose he was thinking about that night before the Lord appears to him? He's probably thinking, tomorrow, here's going to be the plan. We're going to ride up when the sun comes up. We're going to meet him. We're going to catch him before he has a chance to get away. Maybe he's got war plans. Whatever he's thinking is interrupted by God's appearance. God appears to him. And God tells him, 
Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. The New Living Translation has a different version. It says, I'm warning you, leave Jacob alone. (laughs) And I like that one better. (laughs) You know, because if it's don't speak to him good or bad, then he's going to violate that when he starts speaking to him. Mm -hmm. All right. It just means don't speak harm to him. It means, I'm warning you, leave Jacob alone. All right. New Living Translation, leave Jacob alone. This is kind of like the experience that we had with Abimelech in chapter 20. Chapter 20, Abimelech, you remember Abraham had gone to Egypt. He got mixed up in some stuff down there in Egypt with his wife and said, she was my sister. And then he leaves. And shortly after that, same thing happens with Abimelech in Gerar. And he ends up saying, oh, she's my sister. And Abimelech takes her as a wife. And then God appears to him in a dream. You might remember that in chapter 20, verse 3. God appears to him in a dream by night and said to him, indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken for she is a man's wife. And so God has a way of intervening, right? God has a way of setting people straight. And there's some interesting parallels between these two stories, that one with Abimelech and this one with Laban. First, you've got an outsider. Abimelech was an outsider. Laban's an outsider. And they're duped by a Hebrew, all right? So the first one was Abraham. Oh, she's my sister. And Jacob, he sneaks away. The outsider is enraged and intent on settling the score. But before he can retaliate, God speaks to him in a nocturnal dream and deters him from reciprocation. And that's courtesy of Victor P. Hamilton pointing out those similarities between that story and this one. So one of the neat things that we see is that God is able to persuade those who are hostile towards us. He's able to intervene and say, you know what? Here's the line. Don't cross it. He's able to say no more. God is able to intervene beforehand and dissuade hostilities even before they begin. Or, as the first fill-in-the-blank we have right there, God is our defender. God is our defender. And the Bible would promote that idea, not just in this passage, not just in the Abimelech passage, not just for Abraham, not just for Jacob, but for us as well. God can serve as our defender. Does that mean no harm is ever going to come to us? No. Anyone who desires to live a godly life is going to suffer persecution. We have that promise in the Bible. (laughs) But we also have the promise that God is our defender. And where he says this is the line, he's able to keep people from crossing it. God is our defender. Uh, Jacob, if he wasn't able to say it before this meeting with Laban, he's going to be able to say it afterwards. And that is Psalm chapter 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I shall not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. I shall not fear. What can man do to me? And you might be thinking, well, that's nice. That's an Old Testament passage. Do you have anything from the New Testament? Sure. Hebrews 13, 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? (laughs) The author of Hebrews uses that same passage in Psalm 118, verse 6, and he appropriates it for a New Testament audience. All right? So if you're feeling like you only need New Testament passages, there you go. Same one. (laughs) All right? God is our defender. Romans 8, 31. Paul says... What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Mm -hmm. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is our defender. I'll say this as a personal note. Recognizing that God is able to tell people and keep people from crossing the line, that God is able to dissuade people from acting out and keep people behaving. I'll actually pray prayers along those lines when we have, like, say, like, it's a day for a verdict. And we get a verdict. I'm praying. I'm praying, dear God, if this guy wants to have an outburst, you know, when he finds out he's guilty, I pray that you would just keep him calm. I pray that you would help him to realize it's not worth it to jump up and shout and, you know, make a scene and that he'll just sit there. Or maybe it's sensing day and the family's coming in and it's the dad of the child that was molested by this guy sitting in the chair. And I'll be praying the same thing. God, I pray that you would help people to behave themselves today, <laughs> that the dad won't jump over the thing and decide, you know, his last opportunity to get the guys right now. So I'm praying prayers along those lines, recognizing that God can make that line in the sand and say, don't cross it. And people, for whatever reason, you know, I went in there with intentions to hurt somebody and for whatever reason I didn't follow through on it. Hey, I know the reason. I'll give credit to God where God deserves it for, for sure. Verse 25 
Verse 25 is basically the same wording as we saw in verse 23. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. What do you suppose was Jacob's thinking that night? We don't know if he even knows Laban's there. If he does know Laban's there, there's probably fear. And we're going to find out in just a few verses that fear is a big motivator in Jacob's life in making the decisions that he made. Uh, but he may not have even known that Laban was nearby. Laban was probably thinking about revenge. He was probably thinking about the battle plans like we talked about. Or maybe after God appeared to him, he's angry. Because his plans of bringing harm to Jacob are thwarted. When God appears to him and says, no, you're not going to do that. All right, so maybe he's angry about that. And then the next morning, between verses 25 and 26... We have the sun rising, and uh, Laban gets his men. Saddle up! <laughs> Here we go! Get your arms, men, or whatever he might be saying to them to get them ready and get going. And I'm, I'm picturing, you know, the sun coming up, and here's this, this sound off in the distance. You're in Jacob's camp. What does that sound? That doesn't sound good. That sounds like uh, somebody's coming, and it sounds like they mean business. And then you see, cresting over the hill, there's Laban and his group of angry-looking people that he's found to follow him. Uh, there's probably some fear in the camp. There's probably some people waking up to this sound. There's probably people coming out and peeking out their tent. Oh, no, this is not good. <laughs> All right. So uh, they end up, Laban ends up coming to them. And then verse 26, Laban seems to be the first one to speak. Somebody mind reading verse 26. Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Carried away my daughters as if they're captives. From the, we saw a similar thing to this in, in chapter 14, verses 14 through 16, where Lot was hauled away captive. You remember, he was living in Sodom, and there were four kings from a distant land that came through. They had a coalition, and they, they basically conquered Sodom and Gomorrah and the other, the other cities that were around there. And they hauled off Lot, and they hauled off his family, his kids, his, the, the, his wife, and they hauled everybody away. They took all the goods and everything. And Abraham finds out about it. You remember, Abraham mustered up a group and went to save them. Usually when conquerors would come through, they would either slaughter everybody or they would slaughter the ones that weren't of any use to them, any value to them, and they would take away the others. And so it wasn't uncommon for people to be hauled away as captives, as slaves. And in fact, you'll find ancient pictographs, if you will, that depict these people hauled away as slaves and they have these ropes tied around their neck. There's a rope around this neck, goes to the next person in line, rope around that neck, and it just keeps going. They're all tied together with these ropes around their necks as if they're all being led away as captives in a big train. So that's the accusation that Laban has here. Jacob, what have you done? You've hauled away my daughters as captives. You've taken away as if they're prisoners of war. And interestingly and ironically, when he says this, what have you done? The last time we actually heard these words were when Jacob woke up in the morning with Leah. And mm. it was Jacob saying oh. to Laban, what have you done? Mm. So it's kind of interesting. It's the same words. You know, it's just the other guy's the one that's hearing it. What have you done? And it's actually kind of like a criminal complaint in a sense against mm. him. Mm. All right. And is he right or is he wrong that Jacob has hauled away his... <laughs> His wives as captives. Wrong. It's wrong. Yeah, he had to talk with them. They were all on board with this idea. So he's wrong. He's in error as to their intentions. They actually intended to go with him. They weren't uh, hauled away against their will. And his wives. Yeah, and they're his wives. Uh, by the way, does it say you've hauled away your wives? What does it say in that verse? My daughters. My daughters. He doesn't even give the credit as them being actually the wives of Jacob. He calls them daughters. This is how much the world revolves around Laban. <laughs> right? He's calling them his daughters. No, first and foremost, they're wives of Jacob. 
uh, Genesis lays that pattern out, that a man would leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, right? And the two shall become one flesh. It's not that your identity as a spouse replaces your identity as a child. It's that your identity as a spouse supersedes your identity as a child. You're still a child to your parents. But as a spouse, your identity is stronger as a spouse. But in Laban's eyes, no, no, it's about me and those are my kids, uh-huh. not about you and your wife. He says, you know, these are my, my girls, my daughters. And then verse 27 there, why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp. Oh, sure. Yeah, right is all I can say to that. Victor B. Hamilton points out, he says, the Bible offers no other evidence that music played a role in the send-off activities when children left their parents' homes. Sounds like Laban's just making stuff up. We don't have any indication that that ever happened. However, Victor P. Hamilton does add this additional note. But Luke 15, 25 shows that music could play a part in welcoming home activities after the prolonged departure of a child. And that story in Luke 15, 25 is the story of the prodigal son. Sounds like the celebration is when they come home, not when they leave. And that's kind of interesting. It's got kind of uh, ramifications for us. You know, the, the angels in heaven, God rejoice when one that wanders away comes back. And that's where the celebration is when we come back. Verse 28. Somebody mind reading 28 with lots of drama. Sorry, Sherry. Oh, oh, no, no, no. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. All right. Good job. <laughs> that's right. So can you imagine him? He's like, it sounds like he's just playing it up for everybody that's able to hear. I imagine he's probably raising his voice that everybody's able to hear. And he's like, oh, you know feel sorry for me, you know, because I was the one that was wronged here, you know. Oh, it's Jacob that's the bad man. You know, he's doing this little drama act right here. Kiss my sons and my daughters. Give me a break. Uh, Anyway, uh, by the way, what sons? Did Jacob steal his sons? What is is the guy talking about? Grandsons. He's, okay, remember we're talking about the world revolves around Laban? Not only are these girls not your wives, they're my daughters. It's as if he's also saying, not, those boys are not your sons, they're my sons. In Laban's eyes, the world revolves around Laban. All right? The heartbroken father trying to win sympathy from those people hearing. Verse 29, somebody mind reading this one. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. It is in my power to do you harm, New Living Translation says, I could destroy you. The idea of when he says, do you harm, it could be anything from take my daughters back to kill you. Uh, But it's even worse than that because the you there, it is in my power to do you harm. You is not singular. It's plural. It's as if he's saying, I've come to harm not just you, but others with you. Whoa, Laban's so incensed he's going to come and hurt others with Jacob. As if he's saying, and he's implying, I could kill you, I could kill your wives, I could kill your sons. Right? Whoa, this guy's crazy. This guy's nuts. So he's saying, it is in my power to do you, plural, harm, but the God, that's Elohim, the God of your father, which is interesting because the your right there is actually plural as well. He's identifying the God that spoke to him last night and told him, here's the line in the sand, do not cross it. That's not his God. It's your God. Out of his lips, Laban's lips, he's saying, that's your God that spoke to me last night. Your God told me not to cross that line. And he's saying, not just your God, but your God as a group, as a plural. He's saying he's in a different group other than they are. 
And he's recognizing they have a different God than he does. And their God told him last night, don't cross this line in the sand. We're going to find out about Laban's gods in just a little bit. So it could have anything to do with enslave you, take my daughters away, or kill you. And it looks like the dream was pretty effective because that's actually what made him change his mind. You see that there. Uh, it is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night. It, does, it sounds like if he hadn't had that dream last night, things would have turned out a lot worse. Verse 30, somebody mind reading that one. Now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why do you steal my gods? Excellent. Thank you, Mike. But why did you steal my gods? He's saying, your God appeared to me last night. Your God warned me in a dream to leave you alone. Your God told me not to harm you. By the way, where are my gods? <laughs> you took my gods. That's just mean. You took my gods. He's upset that his gods were taken. Really? Look at the contrast between gods here. All right? We've got the God who can appear to the person who doesn't even believe and say, back off. And then we got the God who was stolen away and is hidden, and I can't find him. And you guys took him, and he's somewhere in your stuff. All right, verse 30. You have surely gone because you greatly longed for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? By the way, the word there that's translated gods is Elohim. The same word that was translated as God in verse 29, Elohim. Jacob's God is Elohim. All right, and I would, if I was to write it in English using those letters, I'd put a big E. All right, <laughs> I'd put a capital E. But it's the same word as the little g, the little gods, little e, Elohim, over in verse 30. Elohim, that's kind of weird. We actually saw these things being referred to in verse 19 as teraphim, in Hebrew teraphim. And that means idols or images, all right? Here in verse 30, the same things are called by a different word. They're called Elohim. Elohim is a word that most often in the Bible is used for God. But every once in a while you run across a place like this, where it's clearly not talking about the creator God, the God of the universe, all right? If you're wondering, gee, Elohim, we've run across that before, haven't we? Where have we seen that before? When was the first time that we saw Elohim? Well, I'd ask you this way. In English, what are the first four words of the entire Bible? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, Elohim. In Genesis chapter 1, it's Elohim who is the creator. In verse 1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Jumping down a little more. And the spirit of Elohim was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, and Elohim said, let there be light. Verse 4, and Elohim saw the light and it was good. And Elohim divided the light from the darkness. Jumping down to verse 6, and Elohim said, let there be a firmament. Verse 7, then Elohim made the firmament. Verse 8, and Elohim called the firmament heaven. Verse 9, Elohim said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. You get the, you get the flavor. Mm -hmm. All through chapter 1, all that creation account. Who is it created by? Elohim. But what do we see here? It's a plural. We see here it's translated. It's not, you took my God. You took my gods. It's a plural. All through Genesis, it's a plural. Anything, any of those words that end with im, whether it's teraphim or Elohim, is a plural. So who do we have in Genesis chapter 1? We have a plural. The plural is the creator. How do we reconcile that when we run across another passage in the Bible that says God is one? It's three and one. There's a trinity that's encased in this using of the word. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are present at creation. It's Elohim, it's plural. All right. So that's just what I want to point out there about that. Here's another thing too. These symbols of the family, right? Let me read this by John Hartley. John Hartley says, The fervor of Laban's desire for getting his gods back stands in stark contrast to his poor treatment of his daughters. 
These gods had to do with the identity and power of the family, but in valuing the symbols of the family more than the members of the family, Laban lost his relationship with his daughters and their children. These gods, these images, these idols were the symbol of the family. But he put so much devotion on these symbols of the family that they ended up superseding his devotion to the actual family, the actual members of the family. Uh, You see this actually nowadays. Here's how this looks sometimes. My little daughter, my little son, you're growing up, you're going to school, all your friends have cell phones. I want there to be a way that you can contact me. So I'm going to give you a cell phone. It's a symbol of how much I love you because if you need to reach me, you can call me. But what ends up happening after the passage of a little bit of time? Mm -hmm. That symbol of the family becomes the new God. (laughs) And you try to get your daughter's attention or your son's attention. Hey, look at me. We're at the dinner table. Put that away. Oh, just one more text. Oh, just got to respond to my friend. No, that is becoming your God. (laughs) Put that thing away. Let the family be the things that we value right now. Not the symbols of the family or the symbols of our love. Let the love be real in, in our family. Sorry, just a little soapbox there. <laughs> 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 you go to these restaurants and everyone's like, mm, right. uh, no conversation, kids, fun. It's sad. You look around. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it's become epidemic almost. Verse 31. Somebody might reading verse 31. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said, Perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So he was concerned. He was afraid that if he was going to have this confrontation with Laban, that Laban would take his daughters by force. I don't know what it was that he saw in Laban's actions in the 20 years that he worked for him. But something led him to believe that this guy is unstable. This guy would hurt me if it came down to either him or I. In his mind, it would be him. He would hurt me and take my wives, his daughters back. That seems to be the fear. How many times, though, does fear get in the way of what God would call us to do, right? How many times does fear cause us to hesitate? God says, I want you to do ABC, and we go, oh, I'm afraid. And maybe we only get to A. Maybe we never even get to A. How many times does fear, even if we obey, fear robs us of our joy? We're obeying God. We know that God told us to do this, but because of the fear, we don't do it in joy and in love. We end up doing it in fear. And we go, oh, I'm doing what God told me to do, but I'm really fearful. Fear gets in the way of our relationship with God. We need to be careful about letting fear have that hold in our lives. Verse 32, Jacob is still talking, and here Jacob says, you remember we talked about before, Rachel, when she stole the gods, remember we talked about that being a life and death decision? Here's where you find out this is a life and death decision she made when she stole those gods. Verse 32, Jacob talking, with whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. He's saying, search my whole camp, basically. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So when we read that Rachel stole these little images, their idols, the gods, in verse 19, we weren't sure if she told anybody. Now it seems it's pretty clear she didn't. And at least Jacob doesn't know. Why didn't she tell Jacob that she was stealing dad's gods? Maybe she knew Jacob would disapprove. Maybe she knew Jacob would say, don't do that. Come on. You know, God's taking care of us. Let's just get on the road. All right. We don't know why she didn't tell anybody. We don't know why she took them. But it's apparent now that Jacob didn't even know that she had taken them. So life and death decision, because now Jacob has said, kill anybody you find him with. Ooh. What do you suppose the look on her face was right then? Cool. <laughs> do you suppose there's panic, terror, horror on her face? You know, do you suppose this is like, oh, dear, I'm in it over my head. What have I done? Yeah, probably. Verse 33, and Laban went into Jacob's tent. All right, so apparently Laban suspects Jacob more than anyone. 
All right, apparently Jacob is the main suspect. Laban goes into Jacob's tent and then into Leah's tent. Apparently he didn't find him in Jacob's tent. Then into Leah's tent, into the two maids' tents, but he did not find him. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Dun, dun, dun. Can you feel the tension? Can you feel the anxiety? If you don't know how the story ends, you'd be like, oh, no. How is this going to turn out? This is Jacob's favorite wife. As soon as Laban finds he's gone, she's dead. Oh, no, Jacob's going to be deprived of his favorite wife. He's only going to have Leah left. Oh, this is going to be terrible. Right, the tension. Uh, By the way, the, the indication that the women have separate tents is an indication that Jacob is actually rich. Back then, you wouldn't normally have separate tents, uh, but here they have separate tents. Verse 34, somebody mind reading that one? No, Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in, in the camel's saddle, and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. Excellent, thank you. The search all around the tent, the word that's translated there for search is a search by hand, where you're actually by hand looking. I mean, you're looking with your eyes, of course, but your hands are involved as well. There's a heavy involvement of your hands. So he's he's unzipping the suitcases. <laughs> all right. He's looking under the underwear and the beach towels. All right. He's going over and looking under the beds. All right. He's feeling underneath over here. He's feeling behind the couch over here, whatever the case might be. He's looking, but he's also using his hands a lot in this. By the way, where is Rachel right now? Well, let me ask this. Where is the search going on right now? It's in Rachel's tent, right? Where is Rachel? She's sitting on the camel saddle, right? So Rachel's sitting on the camel saddle, and the search is going on in the tent, and then Lavette's going, wait a minute, does that mean the camel's in the tent? Or saddle off the camel. That's exactly right. The saddle is actually off the camel. They'd actually take the saddles off the camels, and they would use them as like a little sitting place, and you would set it in your... You know, when you take your baby to a restaurant, your baby's in one of those little... You know, the baby gets to sit in the little baby seat in the car, and then a baby's asleep. I'm not missing my dinner. Pull the whole thing out, and you take it with you into the restaurant, and baby gets to keep sleeping while you have your nice little meal, all right? So it's kind of like that, a removable seat that you can take with you and, and put it into a different location. The saddlebags here are the camel saddle. One of the other translations says a camel basket. Other ones say saddlebags. All right, so it's a pocket of sorts that's on the saddle, and she's sitting on it. All right, now the tension is not over yet because when dad comes into the tent, it's proper for the daughter to stand. All right, it's proper for the daughter to stand when dad comes into the tent. And we could assume, that being the way it was, that Leah probably stood when dad went into Leah's tent. But here he comes into Rachel's tent, and if she stands up, he's going to look in the saddlebags, and he's going to find these gods, and Rachel's life is on the line, right? So the tension's still there. You know what? Let's talk for a moment about these gods, all right? This is our first indication as to the relative size of these things. Are these big? Like in in the story of David, there was one that was the size that could be mistaken for David's body, all right? So that was a big one. Is this one a big one? Are these big ones? No. They're able to fit in the saddlebags. So they're little gods. They're small enough to fit into the saddlebags that Rachel's got covered over with her skirt as she's sitting on the saddle. All right? Matthew Henry says this, foolish Laban, to call those things his gods which could be stolen. Enemies may steal our goods, but not our gods. All right? His little tiny gods, these are his gods. Jacob's God appears to him in a dream at night, says, don't cross this line. His gods, where are you hiding? (laughs) Are you in a saddlebag somewhere? (laughs) Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 through 20 has this just scathing report of these people who create these false gods. And I want to read you just a few verses from it. Verse 10 says, who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing? Verse 12 talks about the making of a metal one. He says, the blacksmith with his tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers and works it with the strength of his arms. 
And even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. So it's this guy making himself a metal god. And as he's doing it, he's wearing himself out. And the god can't do anything for him. Can't even provide him a drink of water. And then verse 13, talking about making one out of wood. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane and marks it out with a compass. And makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in his house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and makes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it as if worshiping. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat, he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, I, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it, and says, deliver me for you are my god. Verse 19, and no one considers it in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? So Isaiah there saying, this is ridiculous. Inspired by God, obviously. This is ridiculous. In contrast, we see in Isaiah 45, verse 22, our God, when he says, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The second one right there on your seeds of application, the fill in the blank there, there is no God like our God. There is no God like our God. So now he comes to Rachel. Laban comes to Rachel. It's customary for her to arise. How is she going to get out of this dilemma? Verse 35. Somebody mind reading mm-hmm. verse 35. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but did not find the household idol. Thank you, Gabriella. So he comes in. She's got to find a way to not stand up. And she says, the manner of women is with me. What does that mean? (laughs) Her cycle. That's right, her cycle, her menstrual cycle, right? Mm -hmm. She's saying, sorry, Dad, please excuse me. Mm -hmm. It's that time of month for me, Mm -hmm. right? And she uses that as an excuse not to rise. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, it doesn't carry with it the same idea as it would back then. The menstrual blood back then was considered dangerous. It was considered, in pagan cultures, it was considered a habitation for demons. <laughs> All right? And as if that wasn't enough, the menstrual blood itself was such that it was thought to contaminate anything that it touched. In fact, a woman, if she was to sit on anything, it would be unclean, impure. You couldn't touch it. You couldn't do anything with it anymore. It wasn't just a physical uncleanness. It was actually a defiling or a polluting or a contaminating, making something impure. All right, her cycle, her menstrual blood there was thought to make it that way. And we see vestiges of that in Leviticus chapter 15, verses 19 through 23. In those few verses, six times it talks about menstrual blood and leading to uncleanness. All right, and so you have this idea that when Laban is told this, it's not just an inconvenience that he's considering that his daughter is saying, it, no, it's a contamination, a pollution. I'm not going to touch anything she sat on in his mind. She could get up from that saddle and I'm not even going to search it. So she's saying, Dad, this is the reason I'm staying seated. And he's like, okay, I'm going to search anywhere but there. All right. While we're talking about menstruation, how do you like that as a segue? You don't get that very often in Bible study. (laughs) While we're talking about menstruation, look at Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah 64, 6. If you don't have this underlined in your Bibles, uh, this is a verse that you would want to underline. It really puts us into place when we start to think more highly of ourselves than we should. (laughs) 
All right. Isaiah 64, 6. Somebody mind reading this. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. Like a filthy garment, our righteousness. When you consider your righteousness, put it into God's perspective or put it through God's eyes. It's as if it's a filthy garment. Our righteousness, like a filthy garment. The word that's translated filthy garment right there, it's either a cloth that's been used to cover up a cancerous or contagious sore or a menstrual cloth. A menstrual cloth. He's saying our righteousness, the best we have to offer, amounts to menstrual rags. Do you suppose God stores up menstrual rags? Oh, I love, I love having my collection of menstrual rags. No, that's disgusting. He said, no, he's not going to keep those around. That's horrible to him. You can imagine that being so repulsive. But what is it saying? It's saying our unrighteousness. No, no, that's not what it says. Our righteousness, the best we have to offer, not the worst, the best we have to offer is repulsive in God's sight. Why? Because his righteousness is so much greater. It's a contrast. His righteousness is so much greater that the best we have to offer is disgusting. It's disgusting. It's like menstrual rags. Well, what's the remedy then? If that's the best we have to offer God, there's no hope for us. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. If our righteousness is like filthy rags, Isaiah 1, 18 provides us a glimpse of good news. And while you're turning there, that third fill in the blank there is our righteousness is like filthy rags. That's the fill in the blank there for the third one. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. So if our best that we have to offer is filthy rags, what is our sin? If our best is horrible in God's sight, what remedy is there? Somebody might reading Isaiah 1, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be wool. Perfect. If our righteousness is like filthy rags, then what is our sin? Our sin are like scarlet. It's that stain on the garment. All right. How do you get a stain like that out of a garment in God's eyes? I mean, I've seen some strange cleaning remedies. I was reading up on this a little bit. I spilled beets. We had beets on our salad the other night, and I spilled beets on my white T-shirt. And beets are hard to get out. (laughs) Beet juice is hard to get out, but I found out that apparently a peeled raw potato is your solution for beet stains. Who knew? How do you find this stuff out? Do you just try things? I don't know how you find these things out. A peeled raw potato is apparently the the appropriate thing to use to get out a beet stain. Um, How about red wine on a carpet? I haven't had this happen. We don't have carpets. But red wine on a carpet, how do you get it out? They say you can use white wine or vodka. (laughs) How strange is that? Just these strange remedies. What is the remedy for our sin, though? What is the remedy for our sins that are like scarlet, that stain that is not coming out no matter how hard we try? Ephesians 1.7 provides us the answer. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The forgiveness, the cleansing that we have available to us is his blood. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's like menstrual blood. His blood shed for us when he was on the cross is the remedy. It's the cleansing to that stain we can't get out no matter how hard we try. That's seed application number four. His blood is able to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. His blood is able to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, paint a picture of a group that comes out of the Great Tribulation and they're wearing white robes. And their white robes, they're clean. They're really clean. 
and his being comes along and asks John, who are these? And John says, sir, you know. <laughs> you tell me is kind of what he's saying. Why are you asking me? You know the answer. I don't know the answer. Who are these people that were wearing white robes? And the being ends up saying to him, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. It's the blood. It's the blood that cleanses us from all of our sin. And if that reminds you of, of the words of an old hymn, an old praise song, uh, the first verse goes like this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this stain that we have in our lives, in our spirit, is such that we can never get it out. But you've provided a remedy. And the righteousness that we have in us, amounting to nothing more than blood-stained rags, is solved and cleansed and removed by the blood that you shed on the cross for us. Help us, Lord, to receive that. Help us, Lord, to respond appropriately and say, yes, please cleanse me and submit ourselves to you to be cleaned. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. You guys have a wonderful week. Oh, you too. Thank you.